Hello, and welcome to Everyday Sublime, the podcast that sheds light on a full-spectrum spirituality. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very glad you're here today. Okay, I hope you're doing well. It's been it's been a few weeks where we've had, at least in the United States, we've had quite the um, the election cycle. The election is the election is now behind us, and the aftermath continues to play on. I hope you're doing well. It's it's been a lot to digest and assimilate, and um, I, as many of you expressed, I also want to just share my gratitude for practice, whether it's yoga or meditation or the Dharma, Um, and gratitude for everyone here that's part of this uh, shared community, whether you're a listener somewhere, uh, you're a member of the Sangha, um, whether you practice with us regularly, live, or just over the recordings, I just want to extend a a deep gratitude to all of you. You're all very welcome here. And as an announcement before I give you today's talk, I just want to announce that um, in December, December 6th through 12th, Terry and I will be teaching our online Retreat in Place. And the Retreat in Place is our online adaptation to what we have been offering pre-COVID as our silent meditation retreat experience, which involves seated meditation times, walking meditation, practices for yin yoga, as well as daily instruction, uh, discussion, and Dharma talks. So we've moved it online, and contrary to my kind of apprehension around moving it online, I I just didn't know how the online experience would translate in terms of uh, depth of connection to the practice, teaching, and experiences that really unfold for many people on live retreat settings. I was apprehensive about how it would go online, but having taught now two of these retreats, I'm very pleased uh, with what I've witnessed. Far from having the experience diminished, in in some ways it seems that people are integrating with the practice in within the daily life routine of being at home in a a deeper and more sustainable way. Um, So I, Terry and I are both very, very enthusiastic now about um, the the learning opportunity and the support that this online retreat experience gives. And rather than have me sing the praises of it uh, myself, I think it would be better to hear uh, a few words from some of the students that have participated on these retreats. One student shared, I highly recommend the retreat in place experience. It's been nearly three weeks since the retreat ended, and I am practicing more than ever. Josh and Terry are great; are a great team, and I'm so grateful to be studying with them. Another student shared, The retreat in place was life-changing. I find that I can easily sit down and do a meditation following the style that we did during the retreat. The structure of the day was easy to follow with sufficient breaks for us to do what we needed to do in our daily life and the transitions between daily life and formal practice couldn't be more seamless now. So, um, this is if this is something that's of interest to you, Terry and I welcome you to join us. Again, it's December 6th through 12th, um, and we are flexible with the schedule, meaning that we, there will be recordings made of the primary teachings. So if you're 
in a different time zone from us, we will be able to share and distribute the recordings to you so that you can catch up on the hours that you're not able to attend live. And that's worked well, particularly for our students in Europe that can't make the Eastern Standard Times of our, of our uh, live schedule all the time. Anyway, there will be information about the retreat in place in the show notes. And um, if you have any questions, just shoot us an email, and we're happy to follow up with you from info at yinyogaschool.com. And now for today's talk, uh, which is called lateral drift, which is a phrase that I learned first from my father many, many years ago. It was the name of his sailboat, as I explain in the, in the, in the talk itself. Um, but in the theme, I'm trying to explore a, a phase of meditation process that often gets categorized as the drifting off state or the drifting off phase. It's when your mind uh, moves into um, an alternative world of its own and you kind of lose contact to the sensory world for, for periods of time. Um, most of the time, that experience of drifting off gets maligned. It's something that people try to shut down and reduce with good meditation technique. But as you'll hear in the talk as I begin to open up this, um, this theme, I think there's a tremendous amount of rich content uh, in the drifting off state that can teach us about the nature of our experience, the nature of the self that has experience, and um, reveal more about, in revealing more about that, give us the grist for the mill of more wisdom and compassion. So, without further ado, I give you today's Dharma Talk, Lateral Drift. In tonight's talk, I want to continue on with... Um, some of the basic themes we've been looking at and discussing so far. Uh, the first theme I started to fall off with was this theme of friendliness to our experience uh, when we practice, um, so that uh, we're we're cultivating uh, kindness, gentleness, tolerance to ourselves, to what goes on in our meditation, so that that starts to translate to how we relate to things um, or imbues how we relate to things off the cushion. But in particular, uh, I tried to say this several times, I was encouraging a friendliness towards two broad processes in the meditative experience. And those that refers to the process of drifting off and kind of wandering and thinking about stuff and being in a dreamlike state and friendliness to the experience of waking up, what it's like to be alert, to be conscious, to know that you're aware, to know that you're present. Um, and these, these two processes are, are really the warp and woof or the, the, the bread and butter of meditation. You could say that they're the yin and yang of meditation. Yang is the more ordered and known side of our experience, which is what we encounter when we're awake. When we're awake and alert, we feel like we have an opportunity to assert a kind of control or order over the chaos of our experience. And when we're in a drifting off state, which is much more like a dream-like state, uh, we're in a more yin state. It's more chaotic. We're more we're sort of moving through uh, things that we're not quite sure about or not quite aware of or that, that we're, we're not even know that much about. So we're, we're murking murky our way, if that's a, I can make that a verb. We're, we're moving through the murk of the unknown. And many systems of meditation, um, as I often mention, uh, many systems really try to diminish 
that that yin side of the of our equate of our experience. They try to diminish the wandering, the drifting, the thinking, in in favor in in a way that, that they privilege being present and alert. So all the all the injunctions to be here and now in the present moment. Um, kind of kind of tilt or skew the the meditator in that direction of you know, rooting themselves in presence. And I have nothing against presence. Like it's great to, it's important to have a clear handle on what presence is like and to encourage pres- greater presence in your life. I have nothing against that. Um, my my concern comes in when uh, if we're if we're harsh against the drifting, uh, we can create a lot of unnecessary tension in our meditative journey. And, and that when we're friendlier to it and kinder to it, um, we don't make as big a deal about it. Uh, we paradoxically find, and this is what people have reported to me, that paradoxically they find that you just settle down more easily. There's a, there's a calm that starts to emerge when you're not pushing things away or trying to um, maniacally control what you're, what you're attentive to. But tonight I want to explore now the, the process of drifting off more and open up and sort of present a theoretical reason for the value in that experience or that the value in that process and some of the, the, the real treasures that we can start to mine or, or extract from that experience. Um, and so the, the basic theme is that drifting off has, has real value in, in terms of our journey. And that's what I want to want to look at tonight. And so as I was preparing for this talk, uh, as I do, I walk around my dog in my neighborhood a lot. And that's oftentimes where I sort of chew on ideas for talks and themes. And as I was thinking about the theme of drifting off and how to kind of try to present it and make it seem relevant and valuable to all of you, um, I kept coming up against this phrase from my childhood, which is called lateral drift. The phrase is lateral drift. And lateral drift was the name of a sailboat my dad had when I was a kid that he would spend a lot of time racing, this big sailboat racer. And, you know, as, as, as a child does, uh, sometimes uh, they don't express a lot of interest in their parents' interests. <laughs> so, as enthusiastic and as, as fantastic of a sailor as my father was, I, um, I did not share his enthusiasm for sailing. And so I never really... Uh, talked to him much about it. I never um, really went sailing that much with him. I kind of did my own hobbies. Um, But as I was thinking about it, and and as the phrase kept coming to me around this topic of drifting off, it occurred to me that uh, lateral drift might signify a kind of nautical or navigational uh, process where when you're trying to go from point A to point B, you kind of drift off course due to due to conditions that are pushing you like the wind blowing you in one way or the, the current pushing you against the way you're trying to go so you kind of move to the side you're kind of laterally drifting away from the, the the dead center course that you're following and i thought okay maybe i can use that in terms of and weave that into the theme of, of tonight's talk i can i can uh, try to build around that and make and make it relevant to what we're doing the meditation like we're trying to wake up but there's a way that we kind of get blown aside by our drifting and we and if we learn how to relate to that we'll have like a better experience in terms of how we ultimately come to wake up but just to make sure i got the idea correct you know not not relying exclusively on my own deduction i um i texted my dad and i said hey can 
you had a second. Can you just confirm for me what you meant by the term lateral drift when you named your boat that? And I got this reply from him, which I was not expecting. And I want to share that with you. And this, so this is, and, and quite, you don't know my dad the way I know my dad, but this is the most cogent my dad has been in a long while. He said, when solving a problem, at first I'm like, wait a minute, is this, is this a, na a navigational thing? But he says, when solving a problem, the usual first approach is a head-on, straight-ahead analytical process, which is consciously applied. He had my interest. I was like, okay. So a head-on conscious analytical process that you're trying to apply to a, a problem. He said, he then continues, he says, if the straight-ahead conscious approach fails to render, if it fails to render a solution, the lateral drift approach can be employed by allowing the mind to stop thinking about the problem, which allows, sorry, let me, sometimes the pacing and how I think he means to, to emphasize things is a little bit uh, non-intuitive to me. Let me read that again. He says, if the straight ahead conscious approach fails to render a solution, the lateral drift approach can be employed by allowing the mind to stop thinking about the problem which allows a solution to suggest itself. Through this approach, the mind is no longer tethered by rational straight-ahead constraints. It is free to drift into new areas and patterns. And then he said, he said I gleaned this from Robert Piercig's novel, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, many years ago. I have no idea if it's accurate or not, but that's my idea of lateral drift. <laughs> And I remember reading the, that book, too, when I was young and um, uh, just in high school. I, I, I don't think I gleaned much out of the book in terms of its, its real meaning, something I need to look back to. But it occurred to me that this is a perfect passage. And I want to thank my dad for, uh, <laughs> for giving me such a perfect quote for tonight's topic. Um, because uh, essentially in the Dharma, one way of describing the Dharma is that we're trying to find a solution to the problem of us, the problem of me. <laughs> you know, if, I, if you think back to last week uh, when I was talking about the second aspect of the, the Four Noble Truths, that the cause of our suffering, the Buddha's diagnosis, the Buddha's analysis, the cause of our suffering is habitual, conditioned ways that we grasp after things whether it's a set, like a sense pleasure, uh, the, an idea of becoming somebody else, we grasped at, grasp after things that are incapable of providing peace and happiness. It doesn't mean that like we shouldn't care about nourishing ourselves with good food and like taking care of our home and having healthy, nurturing relationships. All of those things are are vital to a flourishing life. I'm not. I don't. I don't disparage or denigrate those at all. But it's it's the unnecessary unnecessary suffering that our minds habitually generate for ourselves when we're when we're when we're kind of overreaching beyond the bare conditions we need for our survival, and spun out and agitated and anxious and worried and regretful about things that are largely out of our control. And that's what the practice starts to reveal. We start to see as we sit, as we settle into ourselves in a sitting. The sitting functions as a mirror to see the thousand and one ways our mind grasps. We'll see that over and over again. Now, if this is the, 
this is if you follow with me and 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 entertain that the, the the core problem here is the sense of self that has this imperfect incomplete strategy for peace it's looking for peace in all the wrong places it's like looking for love in all the wrong places um if we go into the practice and if we approach our practice in a way where we're trying too much to firmly root ourselves in the present moment, we, A, you can do that. It's possible. Um, I, and I, I'm a, I've, I've practiced that way for years where I, I just put all my effort into being in the here and now, tracking moment-to-moment sensory experience, whether it's on retreat or my daily life. And it's pot. I can I can attest. It's possible to do that, and there's a certain peace that comes in that. But it's also a rather domesticated existence, <laughs> like the like the like the the vitality and the um, the the real juice and, and, and energy of life kind of gets domesticated into being put into a little pen in the side yard where you're not allowed to get too far out of that. You're kind of kept in place. And it occurs to me that. Um, if we're really interested in having a flourishing life with the totality of all of us, all of our meaning, all of our being, meaning the stuff we're conscious of and the stuff that we're unconscious of, I think it behooves us in practice to include the drifting state as a way to access our unconscious energies, our unconscious impulses, our unconscious desires, where a lot of the conditioned reactions and conditioned forms of grasping reside. If you're if you're always just in the present and you're really alert in the present, that has not what I try to say often in my meditation trains, when you're really in the present moment, that experience has an operational influence on how you experience your what what unfolds. Like when you're really alert and looking uh, just at what's going on, conditioned patterns don't necessarily emerge. They don't they don't present themselves because you're so vigilant. Um, and, and therefore I think there's a learning opportunity that gets missed. So I try, I, I've really come to appreciate and see the value in a looser approach to practice, a very soft approach to practice where we allow ourselves to drift. We allow ourselves to drift into the unconscious material and let that unconscious material start to manifest and reveal itself. There, I, I, I heard this quotation from the late Christopher Hitchens on morality years ago, and I've tried to check it up and, and find it online. I can't, I can't, I wasn't able to fact check it. So I don't know if this is exactly what he said or not. But what I heard was something like this, where he says, if you, if you want to see someone's morality, you want to understand someone's morality, watch what they do when they're in a room by themselves, when no one's, when no one's looking. So when you're by yourself and no one's paying attention, he says, that's where your true morality will reveal itself. Um, now, whether that's whether you agree with that or not, I want to kind of borrow that idea and say, if you're interested in getting to know yourself, if you're really getting interested in understanding the totality of who you are, um, get to know what you're like when you're not watching yourself with vigilance. In other words, what do you get up to what do, what do you notice about yourself in the drifting off state? <clears throat> so I'll be saying more about the 
the value of the drifting off and, and what we can what can learn from it and and how it can function within the overall uh, framework of a spiritual path. I'll, I'll be I'll be explaining more about that in, in subsequent weeks. But tonight I kind of want to give a sense for how we can include that dynamic, how we can include the process of drifting off and then how we can come to get to know it. Because usually one of the arguments is that around against one of the arguments against the uh, allowing the drifting experience is that you're not there to know it and therefore it's not valuable you can't you can't get to know the material in real time because it's it, you're you're not you've checked out you you you're unconscious while it's going on and um that's okay i understand why that why someone would say that but this is where uh we can uh, we can avail ourselves of our memory and our ability to recollect after the meditation to start to piece together and rec- remember and, and, and sift through what we were drifting into. So we might, I want to acknowledge that you don't have to be aware of things in the drifting state in real time. That's, that's like, as I often try to say, it's like trying to run with your shoes tied. When your shoes are when you're when you're trying to catch what you're drifting into while it's happening, it just prevents it from ever. You just trip over yourself. You, you it will prevent yourself from drifting in an organic, spontaneous, relaxed way. So that's why, in general, in the meditation, I really recommend a, a receptive approach. You're receptive to drifting off and just letting your mind go into that spool, into that drifting state for as long as it goes on, and then when reality wakes you up again and prods you and reminds you that you're sitting, you can rest into that for a bit. You can come back and just feel your natural presence of sitting for a while, and then you'll be in that phase, and then unbeknownst to you, at some point, your mind will drift. The, the, the unconscious conditions in your being will, will, will sweep you away, and that, will ha- that happens to everybody. It's not a problem. But after we practice tonight, this is this. I'm going to start to add in a, a, a new element to our our sangha time. After we practice tonight, I'll leave about ten minutes. Um, so the talks are going to get a little bit shorter. The sitting will be about thirty minutes, but then there will be about ten minutes to reflect on your experience to use uh, the process of journaling. And I'll say more about that when we come to it with some, with some prompts on how to think about journaling. But going into it, what I just want to say is don't worry about trying to remember everything for the journaling session. Don't worry about trying to be a stenographer while things are happening in your meditation. Just let things uh, be loose and come and go as they will. And 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 just appreciate a, a receptive, tolerant, gentle uh, energy towards whatever's going on for you. Um, so for the instructions... Um, so the, 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 the added layer to the instruction center that I, I want to introduce or reintroduce for some of you, the idea of the meditator, you, the meditator, being like a bird. And I'm going to build on that, that metaphor more as we go into future weeks, too. I'd like you to imagine yourself like a bird, a, a, a beautiful, graceful bird. And birds, when they're not flying, they come to rest on perches. And that's a word you've heard me use. But... A perch in meditation is any neutral experience, uh, say in your body or in your environment, that you let your attention rest on when you want to take a rest or when you naturally find yourself coming to rest. So, and that's, that's, that's a, those are two slightly different dynamics. Sometimes we come to perches, we decide like, oh, I'm really, 
been thinking about this thing, this, this feud that I'm in on Twitter, and I don't want to go there tonight. I want to leave Twitter aside. I don't want to have a Twitter-infested meditation tonight. So I'm going to turn my attention away from that Twitter ball of dukkha and rest my attention on a perch. Like say your hand on your hand, the sensation of your hands on your lap or your body, just generalized, generalized sense of your body sitting or maybe feeling or sensing the, the sounds in your environment. Those are all like really great perches because they're neutral. They don't require uh, you to create them or be involved in the, in the generation of them. You just notice them. If you are a meditator that's used your breath for many years or for a significant period of time, you may find the, the perch of your breath to be very supportive and, and that's fine. But for, for new folks, I, I tend to encourage coming to the breath later on in the meditative journey uh, when you've really softened into your experience and got familiar with the waking and the drifting and, and the various other conditions that go on. Um, but from the perch, you, you'll either find yourself directing your attention to it consciously as a, as a conscious choice and many times you'll probably find that you, you're, you're waking up spontaneously having landed upon it. Meaning you just find yourself, oh, wait, I'm aware of, I didn't intend to be there, but now I feel my hands or I feel my body sitting or I know that I'm sitting quietly. So there's, there's a sort of an unconscious way we'll land on a perch and then conscious times we will land on a perch. And both, both patterns will go on and are, and are allowed in this process. But from the perch... Um, our bird is not chained to the perch, which is often uh, the way uh, some styles of meditation speak about anchoring the attention to something. We're not chaining ourselves to the perch. Our, our, our meditative being as a bird is free to fly and explore. It's a free, wild animal that's not getting domesticated. It's a wild animal that's learning how to navigate its world intuitively. And, and that world includes the drifting states and the waking states. So from the perch, my general recommendation or suggestion is to really be receptive to whatever comes up. Just re be receptive to your experience. You're free to fly into drifting states for as long as you go into them. You're free to fly into waking states. So sometimes, you know, when you're thinking, you might be conscious that you're thinking. And you know that you're thinking, and that's fine. You can be flying within that that those clouds of thought, knowing that you're thinking about something. You can be flying by noticing sensations and patterns of energy in your body or hearing sounds coming and going within your environment. Your mind can freely flow with any of these things that occur and arise as they unfold within the meditation. But the, the, the different thing, the different aspect here, the different, I think the thing that makes this approach a little bit more unique is the permission within it to make choices for what you do with what comes up. Um, you know, in the past weeks, I know I've given sort of key, uh, specifically articulated suggestions, like maybe label it like this and then explore it, sort of given key prompts. But um, in this looser form of practice, you're, you're free to, with permission to go back to the perch at any point. So sometimes people say there isn't enough structure in this meditation. It's too open-ended. It's unstructured. It's, it's not good for beginners. I push back and say, no, there is structure here. Re the ability to return to your perch and leave your perch is enough structure. It's just enough structure. So you don't like, you don't trip too much. You don't fall off a cliff or get, get into trouble. You can always come back. Like if you get into a, a, a cul-de-sac or a dark alley that you're not comfortable with, 
like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. You can just click your heels and you come back to the perch. So the perch is always available. But the other part of permission here is that you're, you have permission, like deep permission to explore anything, to really uh, open something up. So uh, this is where, this is, this is a kind of a different aspect of this approach where you're, if you want to like look into a view, a political view, and I know that the politics are very charged right now. If you want to look into a political view and really think about how you're seeing something, how somebody else might see something, what somebody else said, you want to explore any of those dynamics or any other dynamics that come up, something interpersonally, something within your family, something to do with work, let that come in. It's totally fine to explore that for as long as you want. It could, even if it's the full 30 minutes, that is not, in my view, bad meditation. You're, you're, you're opening to topics and themes and, and dynamics in your life that are alive for you. And you're letting your, 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 your life come into your meditation. And then in that way, your meditation can start to work on your life. And I, as I come next week or the week after, when I come back to looking at the Four Noble Truths, I'll be, I'll be, I'm going to plant the seed on this now, but I'll be suggesting that when you're letting these top themes and topics into your life, you're really starting to integrate uh, an experience of awakening to all aspects of your life, to how you speak, how you act, how you make, earn your living, how you intend to do things, how the views you hold. Those are all aspects of the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth aspect of the fourfold Four Noble Truth teaching. So I will be, we'll be looking at all of that uh, to come. But in this soft, receptive way, by letting themes and topics of your life in, you're really starting to bring the qualities and values of your intention and attention to other topics and themes and aspects of your life. And, and this is, a, I think, a, a vital way to start to find a bridge from what we're doing on the cushion to everything else we're doing in our life. So um, I know in the like building up to this week, I've I've primarily been talking about like qualities of gentleness to your experience, and and then what to do when when you're when you notice that you're awake, and and part of that was actually therapeutic and from my end, I, I spent many weeks and if, I'm saying this now if anyone's new to the to the group, um, you can go back and check out these talks in the library. But I spent many weeks trying to point out. The dimension of our being of pure awareness or awake awareness because i felt like given the volatility of what we we're all riding through everybody needed a safe harbor to, to to start to recognize and rest into to to feel like there's some semblance of sanity within us to to man, manage what was going on um so that's that was part of my my reasoning for why i emphasized like mid-September to mid-October teachings on, on awake awareness a lot. But now that like we've, we've gone through that and now we're starting to contextualize our practice within the Buddhist teachings and the Four Noble Truths, now I want to layer in um, this, this emphasis around and this, this ref these reflections on the drifting process so that we can start to get more familiar with the unconscious impulses, desires, conditions that we um, possess that if we're not aware of them, they, they really start to, they are the ones that are pulling the strings on the puppet. So we want to get to know what they are so that we can ultimately bring more presence, compassion, and kindness to them. And in integrating them, and I'll, I'll have more to say about this, I really think 
integrating what's in the unconscious becomes the uh, the, the, the a cause for a, a greater flourishing of life because we are harnessing all of that energy and channeling it rather than being divided and cut off from it. And I know that sounds probably, if you're a psychologist, that probably sounds very Jungian than I am increasingly more and more influenced by Carl Jung's work, but that's part of the reason why um, I, I feel like this is, this is part of cultivating a flourishing life, like admitting into conscious that which is unconscious, learning how to integrate it and, and, and develop greater skills of relationship to it. So um, I'm going to pause my talk. Those are my reflections for tonight, and I'll take you into a meditation now. So if you'd like to sit comfortably, I'll, I'll reiterate those the basic instructions, but then I will be, I'll be pretty quiet tonight because in this more yin, less focus or less controlling, less uh, specific form of meditation, uh, the open structure is what allows your condition, your experience to be your own experience. It's, it's less directed by me. So from the beginning, spend a few moments tuning into calling forth what we could call your heart's aspiration within practice. What is it that animates and motivates and channels your energy to commit and recommit to this inner work. And really just let that intention, that aspiration, allow that to be voiced softly and offered to yourself. monk that I worked with years back named Tanisro Biku would encourage folks to, to call forth goodwill towards oneself at the beginning. And he would always say, this is not selfish. This is not self-indulgent. If you are able to recognize and uncover a, a, a rugged, durable happiness within, that has a profound effect in terms of how you engage and relate to others. 
or as Joseph Goldstein often says, our practice is not for ourselves alone. So really let this, your own aspiration for your practice be sincerely, genuinely, wholeheartedly voiced. So from this initial gesture of goodwill to oneself, we can also remind ourselves that there's no special experience here to have. There's nothing inherent that we're trying to control, get rid of, deny or hold on to. We're just taking time in a formal way together to sit and be with ourselves in solitude socially. And within this space, there's the opportunity to develop clarity around our relationship to ourselves and what occurs. And to develop wisdom, direct understanding about things that may not necessarily always be apparent on the surface. So within your experience right now, I want to invite you to Explore a few perches. And one is just to listen to the field of sound around your environment. The mind just listen openly to whatever sounds are spontaneously known.
So this layer of your experience, the field of sound, is something that you can relax within, rest into, find a sense of balance and poise within. This can be your perch. You can come shift into that listening at any time or any moment you'd like. And some people are a little more somatic or tactile. And for them, the feeling of their hands resting on their lap, just the contact of the palms on their lap. That more tangible sensory experience of the body, part of the body touching itself. That can serve as a perch. So you can try that. And some like just to feel the, the generalized sense of the body sitting. So the weight of the body against the cushion or chair. And so these are just three suggestions. Field of sound, hands touching, the body sitting. And if other perches present themselves to you as, as a creative idea, please avail yourself of them. These are this, this, these three are just basic starting points. From the perch, allow your mind to be receptive, not as a rule to always be receptive, just as a general starting orientation. So you're receptive to things beyond the perch. Other sensations, other sounds, other thoughts, other feelings. And while you're receptive, you can be receptive to drifting. You don't have to reflexively try to stop or interrupt that. You can let the drifting experience be a, be as every much a valuable part of this process as the times and moments we're awake. when you're awake, you can be receptive to what it's like when you're awake. Waking up, being awake is like this. But within all of these experiences, you, the meditator, you, the, the, the graceful but wild bird, as a meditator, you have permission to come back to the perch, try out a different perch, explore any dynamic thought, theme, feeling, memory, plan, 
You can let it all in. You can let it in for a bit, decide you don't want to let it in, turn back to the perch, or let it in and let it be the big theme of your practice tonight. And the thing I didn't mention in the talk, but it's also uh, should be stated is that you also have permission to use any other practices you've experienced or been uh, exposed to that you learn from somewhere else. So another practice could be your perch. If you're a breath counter or a mantra uh, person or a visualizer, some other practice that is well has been broken in by you and is really a favored, comfortable practice to engage with, use that as your perch. The only difference here is that you don't have to use that tool, that instruction as a rule. It's a perch that you can use as a tool from time to time. And, and you're making yourself available to other things coming up and being pulled laterally in some drifting states, etc. So that's the essence of the instructions as a starting point. And then where you go from there is really up to you. The one final thing I'll say is that if at any point you feel flooded by something very strong, something overwhelming, and going to the perch doesn't seem stabilizing enough, you don't feel like you're on safe ground at the perch, feel free to open your eyes. Opening your eyes is a great way to just you know, pop out of a very disturbing inner world and come to a sober connection to the ordinary room that you're in. You can open your eyes for a bit and then when things settle down, try closing the eyes again. Or just keep your eyes open. You can do all these instructions with eyes open too. Allow gentleness, kindness, and curiosity or interest to support and function as a foundation. For your journey within this inner work. Okay, and thank you for listening today. I really appreciate your presence, your attention, and your practice. Again, if you'd like to join Terry and me on our retreat online from December 6th through 12th, uh, there will be a link in the show notes for that um, for, you to, for you to see more information about the schedule 
and what's involved. Um, but we really welcome you to join us if you'd like to deepen your practice and explore this kind of yin approach to meditation over a greater period of time with greater continuity. There's a lot of interesting things that can unfold within that. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay strong, and practice on. Thank you.